to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay, and I'm a part of the team here. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you had uh, a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know that um, the holidays can be up and down, depending on whatever's happening in our life and family and all of that. But, um, but I do hope that you had at least some glimpses of uh, joy. And here we are, after Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving, we enter into this beautiful season of light. Um, just one, one note, I, I don't usually sit on a stool like this, but you will notice probably at certain points today because of something we're doing in the teaching that I'm walking a bit gingerly today. Um, and I, I hurt my foot and I was texting uh, some of the guys in my life group this morning asking for prayer and they were throwing me ideas of cool stories I could make up as to why I hurt my foot. Like I was protecting my family on Thanksgiving from a horde of wild turkeys or something. And that's not, none of that stuff happened. It's not that cool. My wife got um, a big bounce house for my kids and their little cousins. And I went hard in that bounce house, you guys. <laughs> like, as you do, you know, you, you don't often have a bounce house uh, at your mother-in-law's. And so when you do, you, you go, you know, and... Um, so I went, and, and then I hurt myself. So, uh, so I'm, a, I'm a little ginger, and I'm just going to sit here while we talk, but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> we are in this season of light, Advent. Uh, Advent is that season on the Christian calendar when we sort of journey toward Christmas morning together. And the word Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means arrival or coming, and we call it Advent because this is traditionally every year, the time when we look forward to Christmas. Christmas is, of course, the morning of December 25th. That's when we celebrate it. But the season is much more than that. It's a season. It's a journey we take through darkness, intentionally through darkness, in order to arrive at the light. Uh, because often it is the darkness that helps us to embrace, recognize, and fully cherish um, how beautiful the light is. Um, so as, as you do in any good sermon, I actually want to begin the sort of Advent season in this teaching by telling you a little story about the legendary Johnny Cash. Um, most of you know Johnny Cash, he, one of his most iconic Recordings. Even if you don't listen to Johnny Cash, you probably know the story. One of his most iconic recordings is a live recording he did at Folsom Prison, just a few hours north of here. Um, and he played concerts at Folsom several times, but uh, the first time, 1968, he played a full set with his band, and um, they recorded it and released the album, Johnny Cash, Live at Folsom Prison. And uh, here's a photo of Johnny playing to inmates at Folsom Prison, and they recorded this set and released it, and it became one of Johnny Cash's most famous 
albums. Now, you may not know this, but um, <clears throat> the last song, the final song, the closer, which is a big deal in any concert, right? Like, which song are they going to close with? Like, the big finale. It's a really big deal. The last song Johnny Cash and his band played during this recording, Live at Folsom Prison, was a song that Johnny didn't actually write. It was a song called Greystone Chapel. Here's what's really crazy about the story. The song Greystone Chapel was actually written by an inmate at Folsom Prison, a man named Glenn Shirley. And here's what's even crazier. Johnny Cash had planned to end his set with a different song, a song that he had written. But the night before the concert, literally the night before, somebody showed him Greystone Chapel. Um, the, The song is called Greystone Chapel. Someone showed him Greystone Chapel, and Johnny Cash was so moved by the song, that night, he asked his band to learn the song, and then the next day, he ended his set with this song, Greystone Chapel, which was written by Glenn Shirley, who was at the time an inmate at Folsom Prison. Glenn Shirley had obviously lived a rough life, and he had made some mistakes, and he was imprisoned at Folsom, but while at Folsom, He um, encountered the risen Christ in a very real way, and he wrote a song called Greystone Chapel because at Folsom Prison, there is a chapel called Greystone, And, and Glenn Shirley saw that chapel as a sort of a respite and a symbol for God's goodness in the midst of his own darkness. And so he wrote this song. Somebody found out he wrote this song. They handed the song, they showed the song to Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is so moved by the song, his band learns the song in one night, and they end their set live at Folsom with this song, Greystone Chapel. Glenn Shirley is sitting in the audience, and he had no idea that Johnny Cash was going to end his set playing his song. I want to read for you some of the lyrics from Glenn Shirley's song, Greystone Chapel. It says, inside the walls of prison my body may be. But the Lord has set my soul free. Now there's a graystone chapel here at Folsom. Stands a hundred years old, made of granite rock. It takes a ring of keys to move here at Folsom. But the door to the house of God is never locked. Graystone Chapel is essentially a song about the light of God breaking into the darkness of a place like Folsom Prison. It's what makes the song so powerful, right? It's the juxtaposition of light and darkness, of such a hopeful song being birthed out of such a hopeless place. And from our earliest ages, you and I, just as human beings, from our earliest ages, we have been captivated by this sort of contrast, by this sort of juxtaposition, of light breaking into darkness, of hopeful things being birthed out of hopeless places and situations stories. I, um, you know, kudos to Mark for hanging his lights on Friday. I hung my lights on Wednesday, so I I beat you, Mark. Um, And that's really all that matters in life, is beating Mark Averill. No, I hung my lights on Wednesday because, so I, I broke the rules. I hung my Christmas lights before Thanksgiving. I know you're not supposed to do that. It's like playing Christmas music before Halloween, which 80% of you do, and shame on you for doing that. But um, I hung my lights on, on Wednesday because, uh, not because I enjoy hanging Christmas lights, it's kind of a hassle, 
But I did it because uh, Jenny and I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And for them, that's like the most special thing about Christmas. You know, when we drive home after whatever and um, the sun has gone down and we pull up to our house and they see our house lit up in lights. I mean, just watching Christmas through the eyes of a six-year-old and a three-year-old, it's, it's mesmerizing. And it sort of takes me back. And so for me, I was like, man, I, I want as much of that as possible during this season. So I hung the lights early. And what's really interesting to me is that my kids could care less about the lights during daylight. You know what I mean? My kids don't stare at our house when it's sunny outside and go like, look at the lights that daddy hung. Like, they don't care. But once the darkness comes, right, once the sun sets and the darkness comes, all they want to do is go outside. No matter how cold it is, they just want to stand in our front yard and stare at these lights. And they could do it for hours if I let them. Because sometimes it takes darkness to recognize the beauty of light. Now it suggests it's not just sometimes, it's always. Always it is against the backdrop of darkness that we fully recognize the beauty of light. The writer Andrew Peterson, he puts it this way. He says that sometimes the pinprick of light, the sun coming up at the end of a long night, is made more beautiful by the darkness that surrounds it. The Bible is full of this sort of contrast between light and darkness. I could show you dozens upon dozens upon dozens of examples, and we'll go through some a little bit later, but let me just show you a couple of examples. John chapter 1, what does it say? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us that we, you and I, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Over and over again, the biblical authors use this metaphor, the metaphor of light and darkness. They use that powerful imagery to describe the work of God in our world and in our lives. So for the next four weeks during Advent, as we, you and I, together journey toward Christmas, we're going to um, trek through this series called Adorning the Darkness. And this series is going to explore the various Christmas stories in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 1 and 2. What we're going to see is that in each of these Christmas stories in Matthew's Gospel, we, we discover a God who has been bringing light into dark places since the very beginning. And this is really, really important for us because when we're honest with ourselves, beyond the metaphor, beyond the imagery, when you and I are really, really honest with ourselves, the truth is there is darkness in our lives. There is undeniably darkness in our world. There's darkness in you and there is darkness in me. There's darkness in our histories and in our past and in the stories that we have lived. God knows this. God knows that there is darkness and he doesn't shy away from the darkness in our world and in our lives. He doesn't shy away from the darkness that is in our stories and our past and our histories. But instead, God leans into that darkness and he brings light in ways that we could not ever manufacture on our own read uh, part of this passage earlier, but I want to read it for you again. So powerful. Isaiah chapter 9. These are words 
written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. It's what is called a messianic prophecy. They're words that point to what will happen. In other words, that Jesus is someday going to come. Isaiah writes this, Isaiah 9, verses 2 and then 6 and 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne. Pay careful attention to that phrase. We'll come back to that. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Again, Isaiah 9 is one of the Bible's most famous messianic prophecies. That word messianic is obviously describing the Messiah. You've probably heard that word before. If you were here with us a few months ago, we actually did a deep dive into that word, Messiah. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, and Mashiach is translated into the Greek word Christos, which we translate into the English word Christ. And so the word Messiah and Christ are the same exact word, Mashiach and Christos, Hebrew and Greek. And both words mean the exact same thing. Mashiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, Messiah in Christ. Both words actually mean anointed one. And the reason this is important is because anointed one is actually a royal description. In the ancient world, kings were anointed by oil. And the reason kings were anointed by oil, it was a public declaration that declared from the people, we are anointing this person king, meaning we believe this person is the right person to lead us to freedom and to victory out of darkness and slavery and whatever it is that oppresses us and binds us. That's what anointing was about. So the word Messiah and the word Christ, Christ is not, Jesus' name is not Mr. Christ. It's not his last name, it's a title. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. They mean anointed one, In other words, meaning king. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus Messiah or Jesus the anointed one or Jesus our king, who we believe will lead us to victory and to freedom out of sin, out of death, out of darkness. And Isaiah chapter nine is one of the most well-known Old Testament Messiah Christ prophecies. It's cited over and over again. In fact, during Christmas, it's a passage we read often. Why? Because through Isaiah, God declares in Isaiah chapter 9 that someday he is going to bring for us a king, a Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who will lead his people out of sin and death and brokenness and all that binds us and all that oppresses us. And as that prophecy unfolds in Isaiah 9, there's a lot that's said there, but one of the things that Isaiah makes clear is that this king, the Messiah, the Christ, he will come from David's throne. Now, this David 
is King David. Many of you know him as the, the author of many of the Psalms. Some of you know him, probably all of you know him, because he has that famous story. When he was a little boy, he took that stone from the river, and he slayed the giant Goliath. Even if you didn't grow up in church, like, you probably know that story, right? That's the David we're talking about here. And Isaiah prophesies that someday God is going to send a king, a Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, and that that king will come from the line of David. This is really important because we see that same idea echoed at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. In fact, the opening words of the gospel of Matthew are a fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, literally the opening lines of the New Testament says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Now, if you're going to write a book, opening with the genealogy is not the best way to do it, right? Typically, if you're going to write a story or a book or like film a movie or something, you typically want to begin with a bang, you know? You want to like grab everyone's attention. But what Matthew does is almost literally the opposite. Matthew begins his story, his book, his letter, essentially, and he says, here's Jesus' family history. It's like it's really not compelling until you actually dig into the genealogy and realize this is the best way to start the Jesus story. It's the best way to start the Jesus story because what we're going to discover here in a few moments is that this isn't just about Jesus' family history. It's not just about Jesus' family tree. This is actually a story that reveals to us how God has been, again, shining light into dark places since the very beginning. It's a story about how God has had a plan since the beginning and how through the ups and downs, the successes and failures of his people and our lives, God has been weaving his story throughout. Let me show you. First, genealogies in Jewish tradition, um, they are obviously about family lines, right? They trace family lines like all genealogies do. But in Jewish tradition, and remember, Jesus is thoroughly Jewish. In Jewish tradition, genealogies do more than just trace family lines. In Jewish tradition, genealogies, for kings at least, they would trace royal lineage. And so um, kings in the ancient world, they weren't important just to their literal family. Uh, in the Jewish world especially, kings played a role as representatives of God, and, and kings were really important to the life of the entire family of God's people, not just their literal family. So in other words, Jewish genealogies, um, because they trace royal lines, not just family lines, Jewish genealogies are more than just individual family trees. They're like entire forests. And they're designed not to be seen from the ground up, like seeing one person and who they're related to. Um, genealogies in Jewish tradition, particularly when they're the genealogies of kings, they're actually intended to be seen with a bird's eye view, to see the entire forest, to be able to step back and see the whole genealogy and realize how God has been moving throughout history, and particularly throughout the history of this person's family, 
to tell us something about what God is up to, what he's up to in the world and in our lives. So Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, you'll see this in a moment, his genealogy of Jesus is actually meant to show us that God has been adorning the darkness of the world since the very beginning. You'll see this here in a moment. Matthew's genealogy is actually intended, it's a, genealogies don't feel like Christmas, but it's actually really Christmassy in that the genealogy, when you look at it from a bird's eye view, you realize that God has understood since the beginning that there is darkness in the world and that light has to shine into that darkness. And you'll see here in a moment that God has had that plan since the very beginning in profound ways. Now again, it's not, Matthew doesn't just say this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. He says this is his genealogy, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, right? Remember the, the Isaiah prophecy. It told us that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king, it says that the Messiah will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Matthew includes that phrase that Jesus is the son of David, not just because he's trying to tell us that he's related to this person, David. He tells us that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, because Matthew is being really intentional here to establish Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne of David. And that's not important because David the person is important, although he is, he's considered the greatest king in the history of Israel. But the fact that Jesus comes from the line of David and is the rightful heir to the throne of David is only important in as much as it fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 tells us that God is going to send a Messiah, a king, who will rule and reign with justice and righteousness, who will lead us in the way of peace, toward life and out of sin and death and brokenness. And he says that that person will come from the line of David, from the throne of David. And so what Matthew's doing here is like that person has come. That person we've been waiting for, remember Isaiah was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Matthew's essentially saying that person that God's people have been waiting for for seven centuries, that person is here. That person is Jesus. Matthew is establishing Jesus again as the rightful heir to the throne of David and David's kingdom because that is what fulfills the prophecy. It's not about David the person. It's about the fact that Jesus is the, the person. Jesus is the person. He's the one we've been waiting for. And then in Matthew 1 verses 2 to 17, Matthew actually lists the genealogy. And I'm not going to read the entire thing to you because it's just chock full of names that you and I can't really pronounce properly, but I'm just going to show you until we get to the very last few verses. And so the genealogy begins like this. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And then it goes on and on and on. We'll go to the next slide. And it continues to Aminadab. And then it goes on and on and on. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. It goes on and on and on, and then uh, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, and it just keeps going. All of these names, all of these people, Jeconiah, he was actually the last king before the exile of the Israelites, we'll talk about that in a moment, and then it just keeps going, more and more people, Azor, and on and on, and then finally we get to Joseph, 
and Mary, Jesus' mother. And then, at the end of the genealogy, Matthew says, this is so random, you guys. He says, thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay, let's just leave this slide up here. I want to show you a couple of things. First, we'll touch on the number 14, because on the surface, that number seems so super random, does it not? It's like, what is Matt, what, why? Why does Matthew care about the number 14 so much? But before we touch on the number 14, I just want you to see what's happening here. Matthew breaks up the genealogy in three sets of 14, but he does so in a very particular way. He talks about how Jesus' family lineage goes from Abraham. We just did a whole like two-month series on Abraham, right? He's the patriarch of God's people. It goes from Abraham to David, who is the greatest king in Israel's history. And so that, those first 14 generations from Abraham to David, those two names remind you of like the successes and the highlights of Israel's story, right? Abraham, the patriarch, the father of our faith, David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. These are highlights. But then it says there were 14 more generations from David to the exile in Babylon. And if you know the Israel story, you know that after King David, Israel has terrible king after terrible king after terrible king. It's like a brutally, like really dark season in the life of God's people. In fact, the, the nation splits in two during this time. And eventually, they're exiled to Babylon. They lose their land. They're displaced and they're enslaved to a pagan outsider. Right? The exile to Babylon is like one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. And then we go from exile, where the people felt like God wasn't speaking to them, they're questioning if God was still for them or with them, until eventually we get to the Messiah, the anointed one. Okay, I share this with you because Matthew is being really brilliant and very intentional here. He basically just laid out Jesus' family lineage, his genealogy, and he summarizes it by saying, we go from Abraham to David, highlight, success, like peaks, mountaintops. And then he says, but then we go from David to exile in Babylon. This is like the valley, the dark place, the, the failure of God's people, displacement, losing their land, brokenness. And then we go from exile to the Messiah. Most of those years were still dark and heavy and painful until we get to, again, the peaks, the success, the glory that is Jesus. You see what's happening here? Matthew paints a picture of Jesus' family lineage that isn't all roses. Like he doesn't say, here's Jesus, the king we've been waiting for, and look at his royal lineage. It was just victory after victory after victory. That's not what he says. He says Jesus' lineage is full of ups and downs, successes and failures, light and darkness, peaks and valleys, joys and pains. Do you see that? And what does Matthew do? He says there were 14 generations here, 14 here, and 14 here. Matthew essentially says there were 14 generations in the midst of the success. There were 14 generations in the midst of the failure and the pain. And there have been 14 generations from the pain to now the arrival of the Messiah. Why 14, right? That's the question for us. Why 14? 
In Jewish tradition, uh, still to this day, they use um, a very common form of numerology called gematria. And that's really nerdy. You don't have to remember it, but here's what's important for you to know. Gematria is like an alphanumeric code. This is really common in Jewish tradition. Gematria is an alphanumeric code where they assign numeric value to each letter of the alphabet. So let me show you the name David. And remember, the name David doesn't represent necessarily the person. It represents the fact that God is, he made a promise that through the line of David, the Messiah would come. This is the name David in Hebrew. It's actually, um, uh, it's three Hebrew letters read from left to right. And uh, the first letter and the third letter are the same. It's the Hebrew letter Dalet. And the middle letter is a different letter. It's the Hebrew letter Va or Wa. Okay, now, if you add the numeric values, if you apply jumatria, which is very common in Jewish tradition, to the name David, the letter Dalet, um, the first and the third letter, they have the numeric value of four, and the middle letter, Va, has a numeric value of six. And so what is four plus six plus four? Fourteen. The number 14 in Hebrew tradition represents the name David. David equals 14. This feels random when you read the genealogy and you're like, what in the world? Why why does Matthew care so much about the number 14? Let's let's just take a deep breath because that was a lot of nerd stuff, but it's important. Let's take a deep breath. What is Matthew doing? Abraham to David, success, mountaintops, God's goodness amongst his people. 14, the throne of David, a king is coming. David to exile, valley, darkness, failure, pain, sin, displacement, brokenness. 14. A savior is coming. And from exile to the Messiah, is God still with us? Does God still hear us? Does God still care? Is God's story still unfolding? 14, David, a Messiah is coming. Through all of the ups and the downs, through all of the successes and failures, through all of the peaks and the valleys of Israel's story, God has been weaving his plan in and out, throughout. And in many ways, in the darkest of times, God has continued to whisper, a savior is coming. I am going to shine light into this darkness. You know, there's so much that's interesting about, um, about the genealogy. One of the things that's most fascinating to me, typically in Jewish tradition, you wouldn't name women in Jewish genealogies, especially if it was the genealogy of a king, like a royal lineage, you would not name women. And yet Matthew names women in his genealogy. Here's what's even more mind-blowing. If you were going to name women in Jesus' genealogy, you would want to name like the women who were the highlights of the story. You'd probably want to name the matriarchs of Israel, 
people like um, Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel. But does Matthew name any of them? No. Who does Matthew name? He names a woman named Tamar, another woman named Raham. He names Ruth, and he names Bathsheba. You know what's, what's like, these, these women are all different, but you know what's common about them? One, they were either non-Israelites or they were connected to non-Israelite families. And two, all of these women were associated with indecent scandals. And often, most of the time, not because of their own fault, not because of anything they did, but because of sin and brokenness around them. I mean, Jesus' genealogy, I'm, I'm just sharing all this with you to paint a picture. Jesus' genealogy is not all roses. It's not all, wow, Jesus is awesome because his whole story and his whole family has been awesome. That's not what's happening here. Jesus' genealogy, is, is, it includes the, the flourishing of God's people and the exile of God's people. It includes priests and kings and prostitutes and sinners. It includes the mountaintops and the valleys, the successes and the failures, the wins and the losses. It includes the light and the darkness. In the midst of all of that, Jesus comes on the scene, and there, as he does, as Matthew tells the story, there is this whisper, 14, 14, 14, David, 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 the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. Through the ups and the downs, the peaks and the valleys, the successes and the failures, and just as this was true of Jesus' story, this is true of your story and my story. The reason this genealogy matters and the reason it matters that it is written and told the way that it is written and told is because if the Messiah of the universe, the king of the world, could arrive through such peaks and valleys, if the light of the world could break through the darkness of both exile and pain as well as the winds and the successes, then there is nothing that would keep that God from shining light into the darkness of your life no matter how dark it may get. No matter how deep and foreboding the shadows in the valley may be, there is nothing that can keep God from shining light into the darkness of your life, both now on into the future and even as you look back into the past. In Micah chapter seven, we read that though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Maybe you feel like you've fallen, and if you have, look to Jesus and you will rise. Maybe you feel like you sit in darkness, and if you do, look to Jesus and he will be your light. Because according to Psalm 18, my God turns my darkness into light. The darkness of your present and the darkness of your future and whatever is uncertain, but also the darkness of your past. Like when you look back on your life, when you think back on your story, like go all the way back. And maybe for you, you feel like, okay, if I go all the way back, there's like real darkness. In my family, this is true for me. I come from a broken home. My parents, their marriage lasted less than five years. My father dealt with stuff that like wrecked us, wrecked our family in ways that I don't even remember because I was so young. And often growing up, I thought to myself, 
Why was he my dad? Like, how come I had no say in the matter? Why didn't I get to choose? I would have loved to have a dad who played catch with me in, in the front yard. Like, why didn't I have the sort of dad I see on Instagram that takes their kids fishing on the weekends and takes them to the ball game and um, teaches them how to shave? How come I didn't have any of that? Why? I didn't get to choose. And you didn't get to choose either. And we could either wallow in the darkness of that story or we can choose to see Jesus in the midst of even our past pain the stuff we didn't choose, the circumstances and situations we did not select for ourselves in this grand mystery that is God's love for us, he is able to shine light even into that darkness. To the situations and circumstances you did not choose for yourself, to the darkness and the brokenness of your family history, the things that have happened, Maybe that's another part of your story. Maybe you look back on your past and you think to yourself, well, Jay, if you only knew there have been things done to me, things I would never have chosen for myself, but when I was younger or maybe in more recent years, there were things outside of my control that have broken me. There are things that have been done to me that caused me so much anxiety and shame and even guilt, even though it's not something I did on my own. And you look at those parts of your life and you think to yourself, that stuff, that story, my story is way too dark. Like I'm too ashamed to even speak the words out loud. And if you are, I understand, but here's what you need to know. I believe with every fiber of my being that even in that darkness, no matter what has been done to you, God can shine light into that darkness. There's nothing that's been done to you that is too frightening or off-putting or scary or shameful for God. He steps into that darkness with you. Even if you feel like no one else knows, no one else can know, God steps into those places with you. And he is willing to shine light if you would let him. Maybe you think back to your life and you have regrets. Maybe you've done stuff, made choices, decisions, You feel like, man, I was a different person, but I can't shake that feeling that I can't undo all of the stuff that I did. The ways in which I hurt people. The ways in which I I caused pain and anxiety. The ways in which I broke other people. I deal with this stuff every day, you guys. You see me here on a Sunday for 35 minutes talking about Jesus, but I haven't always been this person. If you knew, like if, if there was like actual, like on the screen, parts of my story before I came to Christ, I would be so ashamed and embarrassed right now, I'd run out that door and probably never come back. I've done stuff in my life that I am so, so ashamed of. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're with me. Maybe you've got regrets. And here's what you and I need to know today. God can shine light even into those dark places. The moment you open your heart and your mind to him and you say, God, I don't want to be that person anymore. 
The moment you embrace the truth of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, that the old is gone, the new has come, that darkness of your past, those decisions, those regrets, those choices, has no power over you anymore. You're free. You and I were made new. It's not about doing the right thing or saying the right thing or knowing the right stuff. It's about a person. Light shines into the darkness not because we execute a plan. Light shines into the darkness when we invite the light to come. Who is the light? John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If there is darkness in you, if there is darkness in your life, in your past or your present, or your future seems dark, you don't need to execute a particular plan or do X, Y, and Z or perform a particular way. You need to give your life to the light of the world to Jesus and invite him to shine into your darkness. And when you do, you will never walk in darkness again. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for shining light into our darkness, for weaving your incredible story of hope through all the ups and downs successes and failures, peaks and valleys of Israel's story and for weaving your beautiful story into the ups and downs, peaks and valleys, successes and failures of our own stories. And we ask Jesus that you would come and be the light of the world for us, that you would be the light in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of my darkness today. As we walk with you, we would live and walk in the confidence of knowing that we will we'll never live in darkness again. Because we are with you, and you are with us, the light of the world. We love you and we thank you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name.